My topic is the relationship between infused and acquired virtues, and a reasonable response to that title is, why would anybody care? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but there, is a, there is a point to the question. Um, often technical-sounding questions have a real point behind them of importance. So to see why we would ask a question like that, let's go to a... a uh, picture somebody, uh, Saint Teresa, uh, a great mystic. Let's say that there's a great mystic in a Carmelite monastery somewhere not far from here. Okay, it's Saturday afternoon. She's on the phone. She's been on the phone all afternoon with different people. She's had a bad day. The first uh, phone call that she got right around lunchtime was with the city council chairman uh, on tax rates. Okay. They want to introduce uh, higher property taxes on the monastery, and um, she's been consulting with the city council and with the attorney for the monastery to see, do we really have to pay these things? Uh, is there any way or outside of paying taxes we can contribute to the common good? Anyway, this is a big headache. Um, the attorney fees alone are going to be painful. All right, So this gives her a headache. So she puts the phone down. Then there's a knock on the door. Mother, mother superior, and that's the novice mistress. Okay, The novice mistress comes in, and she says, uh, Sister Miriam is having trouble. And uh, Sister Miriam is a novice. Okay, um, Why is she having trouble? Well, she's in the middle of discerning something. Okay, what is she discerning? Well, you know, she's been depressed, or seemingly depressed, for a long time. She doesn't feel like doing anything. She gets up in the morning and she's very sluggish. She goes to bed at night with a heavy heart. Uh, she doesn't take any joy in anything. Uh, she wants to go see a psychiatrist. But I told her that she's in the night of the Holy, in the night of the Spirit. Okay, but I'm not sure she's in the night of the Spirit. I think she just is depressed. Uh, should I send her to a psychiatrist, or should I not? What do we make of these gloomy feelings? Is is she a mystic or is she a depressive? <laughs> Does she need St. John of the Cross or Dr. Hammond? Okay. Then the next phone call she gets is from her very own doctor who's calling her back. Uh, she feels sick now, not just because she's been feeling sick for a while, but because the, she's gone to the doctor to get some x-rays done. The, she's afraid that the doctor will say, we got your lab tests back. Okay. Uh, what are they going to say? She thinks about answering the phone. She sees it's from the lab. She puts the phone down. She doesn't answer the phone. Two minutes later, the knock, doors knock again. This time it's the choir director of novices. The choir director of novices comes in and says, Sister, you know, I'm, the Sister Jasmine drives me nuts. Why does she drive you nuts? 
Well, because she is convinced that she can sing. <laughs> she thinks she can sing, and she can't sing. She's terrible. Not only is she terrible, but she's upsetting all the other sisters. I mean, we've been working for a long time to get this choral piece right, and every time we're close to getting it right, she just bursts with, ah! <laughs> And it throws everybody off, and everybody gets mad, and now everybody has a headache. So could you please still tell her that despite her convictions on the matter, she does not have a voice from a gift of God? <laughs> or should we, should we renounce our aesthetic satisfactions in these matters and give up our quest for natural beauty and accept... Oh, <laughs> as our very own personal night of the Holy night of the Spirit. Okay, does lack of consolation come in the form of ah? And finally, so how many virtues have we talked about here, and what kind of virtues have we talked about here? You see, sorting them out can be a little difficult. Go with the city council on tax rates. I mean, do you, if you, uh, what is that the kind of is, where does a good response about threatened raises and tax rates come from? Does it come from your feeling part, your mind part? Does it come from your intelligence? Does it come from your will? Does it come from your stomach? You know, where where does a good response come from? Or the novice mistress on discerning the, the novice's vocation. Is she depressed or is she in a state of mystical prayer? Where, what kind of wisdom belongs to the doctor in diagnosing depression? What kind of wisdom belongs, prudence belongs to the saint in discerning an action of God, drawing you closer? Or the doctor, suppose you've gone to the doctor and changed the example a little bit. Uh, you, you don't want to take up the phone and find out about the lab results. Why is that? Is it a purely natural fear of death? Or is it a reluctance to take on the cross of Christ? You know? Is it fear of death to the body, or is it fear of death to self in God? And the sister who can't sing, who's delusional about her singing abilities, uh, is, you know, do you, what, what is the virtue here? And where does it come from? Does it come from your determination to be fair to the, all the sisters who want to worship God in a beautiful way? Or is it just a, a please, a, an aesthetic virtue where it comes from a sense of what sounds lovely? Or does it come from a will to compassion to include everyone, even though it may be against the common good. Where do these, you know, see what I mean? Uh, how many virtues, think about it, how many virtues do you need to deal with these situations? Are they all the same virtue? St. Augustine would say in a way, yeah. St. Augustine would say, you know what? There's only one virtue here. In these situations and in every situation, there's one virtue, and it's charity. Love God and do what you will, see? So you are loving in a just way if you pay your taxes. You're loving in a prudent way if you distinguish between uh, mystical prayer and 
clinical depression. Um, you can distinguish between, a, uh, is there a difference between the fear you fear, the fear you feel with in respect to physical illness, and the fear you, the fear you feel, at the prospect of your death and going before God. Well, he would say that those are, uh, that's fortitude in the love of God. That's love and as expressed as fortitude, or the sister. That's love expressed as justice. Love expressed as compassion. Uh, you see, Augustine would say that there's really one virtue. All, all virtues are forms of love. Prudence, fortitude, temperance. It's all uh, different expressions of love. Now, St. Thomas would say that that isn't true. St. Thomas would say that there's more than one virtue, that, that uh, charity, of course, is the, uh, the crown of all the virtues, the form of all the virtues, he would say, but charity doesn't swallow up all the virtues, you see. Charity doesn't extinguish the others, but charity just gives uh, a finality to the others. What's the advantage of being persnickety like this? Well, it allows us to um, uh, not throw throw the quality of our moral life all uh, and smash it together as though it were all simply one thing. What the, the virtue of distinguishing between virtues is, is that it allows us to give some precision in the descriptions of our moral life, you see. So being prudent is not just the same thing exactly as being just because there's more way to be prudent than just to be just. The other virtues too, they have their proper objects, but they, uh, but the objects are different from each other and the differences between each other make a difference. Before we go on to this, I want to uh, I want to talk about. Uh, I'll come back to this, but I want to uh, backtrack a little bit and talk about a virtue as uh, a good habitus. Habitus comes from habere, Latin meaning to have. Well, to have what? Uh, St. Thomas would go on to say that habitus as habere to have means having either a relation to self, or it has relation, okay, relationship. To have relationship either to self or to other realities insofar as these are fitting or unfitting, okay? Flourishing or unflourishing. Well, to virtues then is to have have a habitus, a form of having which is a relationship to self or others with respect to flourishing or uh, being destroyed. It's to have a quality. So a habit is a kind of quality, an accidental (laughs) mode of being. Now when St. Thomas talks about a further analysis of quality, he says basically quality answers the question how something is. So scrambled eggs, how are they? Like, well, they're, they're hot and they're tasty. That means they have everything a scrambled egg should be. Okay? It's got it's, uh, a uh, uh, 
It answers the question, how is it? Now, that question, how is it, has four different dimensions. Uh, one of them, St. Thomas says, has to do, roughly analogically speaking, with quantity, which is an ordered disposition of parts. He thinks a uh, quantity really has to do with exterior extension, and wherever you have exterior extension, you have implicit order. Now, St. Thomas doesn't really say that virtues have quantity, as though they might have weight or height or width. He doesn't mean that. It's just very analogical speaking. What he does mean is that a habit, a habitus, has an implicit logic in it, an order in it, which tends to order your whole life. If you've got a habitus, you've got an ordering principle that will govern your life. So if you have a habitus of drinking too much, what you've got is a principle of action in you that will organize your whole life if you let it. So if you, if you tell me you're an active alcoholic, I can tell you about your life. I can tell you of the form it has taken. You have lost friends over this. You've lost family members over this. You've lost jobs over this. Okay? You have become untruthful because of this. You have been in denial because of this. You are on the road to losing all of your possessions over this. You are en route to losing your life as your liver collapses, you see. If you are truly an alcoholic and have a habitus of drinking too much and can't control it, this habitus will rob you of your life. That's the direction. If you have a habitus of prayer, on the other hand, that means that there is an ordering principle in your life which gets you to pray in the morning and then in the afternoon and then in the evening, in which case you say to God more and more, your will be done and this means that the pattern of your life will be, as, as was said so well by Professor Jensen, um, not, uh, I must decrease, he must increase. You will become smaller and smaller. Uh, the dreams you had about world domination uh, on a military uh, field have shrunk to dreams of military domination on the risk blackboard. <laughs> and, and even those begin to shrink, you see. And then after a while, you don't even want to dominate anymore, you know. So that's the trajectory. If you're really living a life of prayer, God will grow greater, you will grow less, and you'll be happier. That's the pattern of your life, see. If you are a materialistic person and you really have a habitus of acquisitiveness, what will happen? There's a principle in your life, and it's running your life, and it means that you're going to become shallower and shallower because you've identified yourself with things rather than people or ideas or God. See, So you will be gradually become more and more the kind of person who says, well, when I was in Aspen last month and uh, was, show, was driving my new Mercedes, I had to drop by the art uh, uh, gallery where I could pick up my two new purchases, which, by the way, were very expensive. <laughs> Do you want to spend time with somebody like that? No, they're boring, are they not? Why are they boring? They're boring because they have, I, they have gone out to embrace something as their lover, which is just an object. They have lowered themselves to what they love. See, that's what happens. It, in knowledge, we take things in. In love, we go out to and touch things. And we find 
our own level in what we love, see? That's why if you love things as your final end, you become as shallow and brittle and as ultimately unimportant as things, see? But that's, that's what your life is like. Tell me a habitus, I'll tell you your life, see? Um, two other qualities, Mark, uh, uh, there are two other dimensions of equality that I wanted to talk about. There's action and passion. That is to say, if you have a habitus, you find it very easy to act in a characteristic way. If you're selfish, you find it easy to ignore people's needs. If you're generous, you find it easy and natural to write the check or just give the time, you see? It's not hard for you. You've grown accustomed to it, and so action, whether selfish or generous, springs readily. Also, there's a dimension of a habitus that makes it very difficult to change. If you have a habitus, uh, and you're, let's say it's a habitus of avarice, you are greedy, what's going to happen? Well, you're going to find it very hard to be generous. Someone will say, please, Mr. Twombo, could you please help our children's home and pull out your pocket and take your wallet and write us a big check? You've just gotten a word from the doctor. Uh, you may be dying, and you've read the gospel about Lazarus and um, that unhelpful rich man who is uh, vacationing now in the nether regions and is not entirely satisfied with the service. So you say, I need to write a check. I, I must write a check. <laughs> okay are you satisfied God are you satisfied I did it not easy to do see oh no I want another check <laughs> Maybe about the hundredth time, uh, it'll be easier, okay? <laughs> but to lose a habit of avarice or greed or lust or, or, you know, justice, charity, mercy, to lose a habit is just not easy. So they, we, we are hard to change. Aristotle thought we couldn't change after our 30s. <laughs> really, he thought that once you have a habit, you're stuck with it, you know? And we are, in many ways, the prisoners of our habits. So, you know, I've, I've undertaken several unsuccessful attempts at renovation. You know, our basic personality it, it tends to remain. Okay, finally, there's habit with reference to nature or, or disposition, which means that a habitus is really ordered to the fullness of being. I mean, I mean a good habitus is. If you have a good habitus, it's directed to your flourishing. If you have a bad habitus or a vice, it's ordered to your destruction. Okay. Now, as we said last night, there are two different kinds of habitus. There's annotative habitus, which relates to how you are on the level of being. The standard example Thomas gives is health. He only does that because he wants the supernatural example of grace. And then there are operative habits, which are... Uh, Powers of action. Okay, what powers then are subjects of habits? Basically, as we saw last night, there are three. Uh, not our vegetative habits are power. Uh, not vegetative powers. You can't have a habit of growing toenails. Um, 
because toenails only grow one way and at one rate. You can't really, nobody looks at you and says, I love the way you grow your toenails. <laughs> Can you tell me your secret? It's so enticing. It doesn't work that way. Um, have a new, toenails only grow one way in one direction and with one, you know, one end. That's it. There's no habit there. Uh, you need to, to really have a power that can be subject to a habit, it's got to be able to do more than one thing, and it's got to be able to do it in more than one way. All right? So those are the th there are three candidates for that. Passions, our will, and our mind. These are three powers that we have that can be, uh, that have diversity in their operation, their modes of operation, and diversity in the objects of their operation. So take the mind just as an example. What can your mind think about? Nearly everything, right? The being is the, is the object of the mind. So uh, you back, your mind can go from earthworms to God and back again. Your mind can occupy itself with anything in between, spirits, matter, fiction, uh, horoscopes, uh, anything you can ma imagine or think about is the object of your mind. Not only that, not only can your mind range over everything from God to subatomic particles, but you can think about the same reality from a multitude of angles. So you can think about God theologically as the object of faith. You can think about God as a concept which has motivated wars of religion. You can think about God as the subject of psychological experiences, people who, who believe they've encountered God, you know. God can be approached, the same material object, God can be thought about from so many different angles and from so many different formalities. That means that because, precisely because the mind can go so many ways to, to so many objects, uh, if it's going to get to any object from any point of angle, it's going to need training. It's going to need habituation. You ever been, can you remember your first philosophy discussion? Uh, I bet I know how it went. I know how mine went. Yeah, dude. Um, man, like things are really mysterious out there. Um, I think maybe we're all one thing. <laughs> But, like, we're different, too. <laughs> and, like, being the same and being different is being different and being the same. <laughs> I was really impressed with myself after I said that. Uh, it's humiliating. I mean, it's just humiliating. Have you ever read your freshman papers? God, they're awful. At least mine were. I, I, I tried once to compare Kierkegaard, Heidegger, and St. John of the Cross in 12 pages. Uh, but many people have blackmailed me about that. Just, I mean, it's rubbish, okay? Sheer rubbish. But that's, what you, that's your first time around the block. You do the best you can, and it's awful, and then maybe you get a little bit better, right? Um, anyway, uh, the point is that it, if you're going to really philosophize, you need more than one attempt. You need more than one class. You need to read more than one book, and gradually you get a little better at it, you know? You get some sophistication, learn as you go, 
but you're not going to be able to be Martin Heidegger or Ludwig Wittgenstein right out of the gate. Usually it takes at least a semester. To <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that's just the, the power needs training. And the same is true of the passions and the will. The passions do obey reason after a fashion, not right away, not politically, uh, not despotically, but as they say, polit- politically. All right, the point is that um, a virtue then really is a way in which we are most fittingly for ourselves able to encounter the world. We are enabled to encounter reality, okay? Now, um, so a habit then is kind of an adaptation of the human person, of his powers of action, to respond adequately to the world as it presents itself. And the world represents itself in so many different ways. It can present itself to us as dangerous. I was on, uh, in Africa a while back, uh, on a, uh, and out in, the wilderness, out in the safari, you know, and it was, uh, I was in a jeep, so that was safe. There were some lions running around, and uh, they, they, um, I was relieved to hear the guide say, don't worry, they don't look at you as food. <laughs> so I did not present to them as food. That was good. Um, but there are other animals out there that you would present themselves as food, and that's, that's you know, you want to stay away from them. Um, so the world can present itself as dangerous. Uh, Policemen often encounter the world as dangerous, you know? The guy running at them, you know, uh, in, the, in the hallway when there's been shots fired is typically not running up to ask his blessing or his advice, you know? He's a dangerous fellow. You need a way to respond to that. The virtue is called fortitude. Uh, we respond to the world as intelligible, you know, by our minds. We're open to... to to the reality in things. See, that we can only respond with our intelligence to things because things are at root intelligible. Um, or as desirable, you know? Uh, you go out on a date with somebody uh, and you're not looking to embrace a life of austere penance by doing so. Uh, you're actually, you know, you're not saying, I've got to find a real mortification for my entire life, and therefore I will find a totally unsuitable spouse. Would you be my personal hair shirt? (laughs) I'm in need of a hair shirt. Would you kind of nag me all my life long? (laughs) No, uh, no, no, no. There's something sick about that. Uh, If you're looking for a spouse, you're looking for the spouse as desirable, right? I mean, that doesn't mean you have artificial beauty contests or, you know, macho contests or what, or rich contests, but, but, the, but the, ideally the person you marry should be attractive to you, right? I mean, people get in vocational trouble with us all the time. I mean, not with marriage. People rarely, rarely, rarely marry someone to punish themselves. <laughs> <laughs> But you'd be surprised how many people embrace religious life to punish the God must. Really, I'm serious. They, they, you know, I want to, I want to do a life of penance, you know, and suffering. And so I'll live with you, and I can make you suffer. 
filling up what is lacking in the suffering of Christ. St. Paul said, that's my vocation, to make other people suffer. I will be their hair shirt. It's nuts. Um, or that you encounter someone as issuing claims. You've got a child, right, who is born with uh, uh, Asperger's syndrome. This is a new reality to encounter. You weren't looking for a kid with Asperger's syndrome, but this is what you've got. And what do you, how do you respond to him? Right? Uh, there's a way to respond to him. Uh, but one of the ways he presents himself to you is making claims. I need your love and attention and your patience. I'm, my very affliction calls out for this, you see. So if you're going to respond, if you're, you're called on to respond and you need resources to respond to your child as afflicted, which is very different from the response you need for your child as gifted. See, you're, you're going to need a whole other set of responses to a very gifted child, right? Um, okay. Anyway, you, you see the point. The, the reality is so variegated that... Uh, you need a wholly a, a different set of response, not mechanical responses, but you need a characteristic way of responding to the very puzzling objects that present themselves to you. Do you see? All right. Now, what has this got to do with moral virtue in its infused and acquired modes? Well, the, the, the shorthand claim I want to make, and I better make it now in case I forget later on, the, 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 what I'm really aiming at is that um, the kingdom of God is in our midst and presents itself to us, and that, that requires a certain kind of response. And then sometimes what encounters us is simply ordinary the world in its untransfigured state in its uh, not ultimate state in its uh, lapsarian state you say and then sometimes the response that we need the virtuous response is proportionate to that quotidian reality you see so I uh, let me let me develop this a little bit um, Christian, um, let's uh, let's take a a question of um, our our nun, okay? Who is uh, at the phone? She is faced with a lot of different situations. She's faced with the the troubled sister who is either in a very advanced state of prayer or clinically depressed, okay? If, suppose she is trained as a mystical theologian. She went to Rome and got a degree, a doctorate in spirituality, okay? Now she's back in the monastery. Sister comes in and says, you know, I'm, I'm really, uh, really kind of, uh, I can't tell what I am. I, I don't have any desire for God, and yet I spend hours in prayer. I get no relish from it, and yet I find myself, you know, uh, doing the rule more and more, okay? Okay, what do you make of that? If you're trained in spiritual theology, 
and you have a habitus of, of, and a gift of the Spirit, you'll be able to sense, uh, presented with this person, you'll be able to respond to this person uh, with discernment, indicating uh, that, it, don't be afraid, it's not clinical depression, God is simply moving you closer to himself. See, how do you make that kind of determination? It can only be through uh, a gift, a, a supernatural prudence, and a gift of the Holy Spirit. We'll talk more about that last time. You see, that's what you need in order to help the person, if that's the problem, okay? If that is the problem, if the person is, if that's the opportunity, if the person really is in an advanced state of prayer and not clinically depressed, then your own gift of counsel, your own virtue of prudence, will help you recognize what's going on and respond to it adequately, right? Suppose, though, um, that isn't sister's problem. Suppose she's clinically depressed, not mystically uh, moved. If you are trained in spirituality but not clinical psychology, you might make a mistake you might assume that it's a matter of spirituality when it's really a matter of medication, you see? So you need, you, you don't, it's supernaturally infused prudence informed by spiritual theology isn't enough by itself to diagnose clinical depression. You need, on the other hand, uh, if you're a doctor, and you have no training in spirituality, and a religious comes into you who's been in a monastery for 40 years and, and says, I, you know, I, I just feel kind of depressed, and then you're a doctor, you'd probably be tempted to say, well, if I'd spent 40 years in a monastery, I'd feel depressed too. Um, but if you, leaving that aside, you see, if you... Uh, don't have the training and, and, or the belief in God or the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and you are trained in medicine, when the person comes before you and says, I really feel depressed, uh, your first response is going to be to prescribe medication, right? And you might miss the real problem. You might miss it because you're trained to respond to everything uh, as a psychiatrist as though it were a matter simply of brain chemistry. And it's not brain chemistry. That's the problem. It's, uh, it's something else. It's on a spiritual order. The people who deal with um, the possessed or, or, the, or the, the psychotic have the same problem. I mean, telling the difference between someone who's diabolically uh, influenced and somebody who is uh, not, somebody who is simply mentally ill, is, requires a different set of virtues, you see. A different set of eyes, really, a different kind of prudence. And uh, what you acquire on a natural level isn't always enough to guide you in, in, in supernaturally elevated situations. And the other thing is true as well. People who have gifts for guidance in spiritual matters sometimes are not clinically trained, and so they can't see the human mess or the human situation that is before their very eyes. You know what I mean? You can, sometimes you need uh, another, uh, a more clinically trained uh, uh, capacity for discernment. Okay, 
So let's talk, going back to this, we want to sort out that. You have, because you have to respond to different kinds of situations with different um, uh, objectives, you're going to need a different set of skills and a different set, therefore, of virtues. How do you classify virtues? St. Thomas helps us sort this out by considering virtues from the perspective of their efficient cause. And from this perspective, there are two kinds of virtue. There are infused virtues, and those are the virtues in a human person that are directly caused by God. Faith, hope, and charity, the first examples. Acquired virtues are caused by the repeated human acts of human beings. Closely related to this is the classification based upon end or purpose. Supernatural virtues aim at a life I aim at a life completed in supernatural union with God. Natural virtues are virtues which aim at the completion or fulfillment of human nature. So far, there's been a smooth grafting of one schema of classification upon another. All infused virtues are supernatural virtues. All acquired virtues are natural virtues. But there is a third way of classifying virtues, and this is by way of object. Theological virtues have God as their objective. That is, your believing mind contacts God as first truth speaking. Your hoping will encounters God as omnipotent beneficence. Um, charity, your uh, supernatural charity contacts God as lovable not precisely because he's good for you, but because he's good entirely in himself. Now, there's a subtle difference here between object and end. An end signals an ultimate goal. An object, on the other hand, signals an imminent term. The notion of a formal objective adds the precision of the specifying resource that makes the virtue possible to begin with. That's, comp that's technical, but it's easier illustrated than explained. Faith has an object. It terminates in God as first truth revealing because God is truthful. Because God is truthful, then it's virtuous to believe him. If he were not so, there could be no virtue of faith. Charity has an object. It is God as lovable in himself and for his own sake. It is because God truly is lovable that it is possible to so love him. The lovableness of God functions as the resource and object of the virtue of charity. Now, when St. Thomas distinguishes virtues by object, he provides an abbreviated and abstract, but nevertheless precise and informative, map of the different kinds of realities the human agent faces in the world, and he indicates the proper manner of response. Most essential classification of virtue by object yields the most essential distinction between the virtues which deal directly with God and those virtues that deal with the created and therefore comprehensible world that the human being encounters. Does classification by object graft neatly onto classification by cause and end? The answer is no. 
not with respect to properly moral virtues. Moral virtues can be both, and this is what's unique about them, moral virtues can be caused directly by God, as infused. Moral virtues are also caused by repeated human actions of the right sort. Faith, hope, and charity can be only caused by God, okay? But prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance can be caused both by God and by the human person. Well, but why have two causes of the same virtue? The answer is they're not the same virtue. See? Supernatural, infused justice is different from acquired justice. Infused prudence is different from acquired prudence. Why do we have them? Why do we need two different sets of the same virtue? The difference is we need them because of the different mean. They say that virtue is in the mean, the midpoint between excess and defect. Well, with infused and acquired virtues, there's a different mean. Go to the doctor. He says, you know, Father, you really need to lose weight. And I say, no, I don't. He says, yes, you do. And I say, all right, I believe you. Um, why am I losing weight? I'm losing weight because the doctor says I should. Okay, good. That's a good enough reason. I go to the, I go to the doctor and he says, Father, you are amazingly svelte. I can't think of a single thing you could do to improve your health. Go in peace. <laughs> he says that all the time. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I go home. And the prior says, well, how'd the doctor think of you? And I says, he thinks I'm wonderful. Um, so uh, should I, well, it's Lent, what should I do? Should I fast? Yeah. Why are you fasting? It's not because you need to lose weight. It's because you need to do penance. It's because you're an egotistical maniac because you're so svelte, okay? <laughs> you're so good looking, you say to yourself. I well, let's make yourself a little less good-looking. Let's uh, and we'll mortify your appetite. Let's fast a bit, okay? Is fasting and dieting the same act? Is the virtue of fasting the same as the virtue of dieting? No, they're different. Why? Because there's a different mean. The mean of health is governed by the reason, as informed by the physician. Whereas penance, or the fa fa fasting as a form of penance, is not measured by your good health or good looks. Fasting as a penance is measured by your conformity to the cross of Christ. See, there's a different mean there, and therefore there's a different, um, a different virtue. The question is this. How do, we know there is such, how do we know there are infused and acquired virtues? Is it a matter of faith? No. It's a matter of a different theological opinion. Franciscans and Jesuits and Redemptorists all join and deny there is any such thing as an infused moral virtue. Dominicans and Carmelites team up and say that there are such things as infused moral virtues. People who say there are no infused moral uh, virtues, people who say there are no infused moral virtues, typically appeal to Occam's razor. Why multiply, why multiply virtues needlessly? Right? Uh, it's enough to say that uh, a virtue is commanded by the uh, moral virtue can be commanded by charity to love God. Okay, so your uh, acquired justice 
can be directed, commanded by, to, by the virtue of charity to the love of God, and that's enough to supernaturalize the act. You want to say everything we do is supernaturalized, but you can take a natural moral virtue, command it by charity, and that will supernaturalize it, and it's directed to the last end. We don't, why have infused moral virtues? We don't need them. Uh, the, uh, and what there, there's an answer to that, uh, a twofold answer to that, one experiential, one theoretical. Theoretical answer to that is we think there are, are infused moral virtues because uh, it's not enough for a virtue to be extrinsically commanded to be attitude. It also must, there must also be an intrinsic proportion to be attitude, and there's no human virtue under, uh, achieved by human effort which is adequate to the kingdom of heaven, you see. There has to be an intrinsic proportion between the virtue and beatitude for it to count as being, you know, uh, as intrinsically sanctified. That's the theoretical reason. The practical uh, reason is simply human pastoral experience. It doesn't happen all the time, but every once in a while you'll see somebody come to confession who will say, Father, I can't believe it, but I said a prayer to St. Jude last night and I've been drinking heavily all my life, and now... Yesterday, I, got, I asked for a miracle, and I believe I got one. I haven't been drinking. I don't want to drink. That happens every so often, you know. Uh, it does, there, are, uh, there are conversions of life that are dramatic and are hard to explain by previously acquired habits. See? Now, that doesn't prove anything, but it's suggested, you see. It's suggested. In any case, what I'm, I'm going I'm to stop now. I'm going to develop this uh, in the talk on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. What I want, to, and I, well, I'll talk about the Beatitudes as Professor Jensen did, but what I, what I want to close with is my, my hunch, my, the original idea in all of this that I have is that one of the real differences between an infused moral virtue and an acquired moral virtue is that an infused moral virtue serves the purposes of revelation of the kingdom, whereas an acquired human virtue testifies to human excellence. If, I, if you have an acquired virtue and I see you performing, I say, what a magnificent performance. I admire it. When I see a saint do something, the same act, I say, how great God is. I see the goodness of God. See? Not the way you see the goodness of God in all creation, but God specifically at work here and now in your generosity, in your prayer, in your sacrifice. God is doing this, you say to yourself. You are doing it, but God is revealing himself. For that, I, for that, that is what I think a, a morally, uh, an infused moral virtue does. It, it is really an announcement of the approaching reign of God, okay? Not in, the, not in the sign of casting out devils and healing the sick, not in the realm of miracle, but in the realm of moral conduct and character. Uh, let your light shine before men so that they may praise you. No, so that you may praise the Father in heaven who's doing this in you, you see. When you've got that, you've got an infused moral virtue. And that's why they really matter. It's not 
they really matter because they reveal the presence of God and serve revelation. Okay, thank you very much.